1: All right, everybody, welcome back to the Iowa Sportsman Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, and today is all about catfish. We're going to be talking with Brad Durek. He lives in South Dakota, and he's going to be talking to us about tips and tricks and strategy and things to look for and tackle and a whole bunch of other different things uh, regarding how to catch catfish. And um, I love eating catfish. Uh, I've never been into, you know, the, you know, going out and strictly fishing for them. It's always been kind of a fish that if I accidentally caught a catfish, I accidentally caught a catfish. So learning, learning, from Brad today was kind of interesting for me and uh, you know something that I might be picking up in the fu- in the near future uh, this summer in fact because I know of a couple holes where some catfish live and uh, I might uh, give it a try if I can get some time. So without further ado let's get into today's catfishing podcast with Brad Durek. All right on the phone with me right now Mr. Brad Durick. How you doing man? I'm great. So before we started recording, you mentioned mentioned that uh, you're in a blizzard right now, and it's uh, mid-March. That's right. And this
0: appears to be one of the better ones we've had this year, too.
1: Yeah, yeah. So why don't you tell everybody, uh, where do you live and what do you do for a living? I live up in Grand Forks, North Dakota, which is kind of the midpoint of the Red River of the
0: north. And for a living, I am a full-time catfish guide, speaker, and writer.
1: Nice, nice. So, why catfish?
0: You know, that's a
1: never-ending question. <laughs>
0: um, Living in the middle of walleye world, it all kind of started because we were traveling all these, to all these lakes to catch walleyes, and we were still young. And finally, it dawned on us that we had what is supposedly the greatest channel catfishery in the world right here in town. So ultimately, to save money, we started chasing catfish, although it only took one to get me all in on it. Right. And within another decade, it basically
1: became my life. Right, right. So all so it's funny, you know, like every time you think of fishing, for some reason for me, the first fish that comes to mind is bass, right? Largemouth bass because it's probably the most accessible, probably one of the most popular, um, popular, I don't know, uh, fish to catch, but... Every time I do go out bass fishing, I see this one guy, and or you know, and I am using a generalization, right? There's one person out there with a big pole, and he's just sitting there waiting, right? He's he's trying to catch catfish, and um, the patience that some of these catfishermen have is absolutely crazy, because um, I don't know if I could do it. I can tell you that. My patience is really, really thin, which <laughs>
0: some days is to my detriment, but most of the time it tends to put more fish in the boat.
1: Ah, I gotcha. I gotcha. So let's uh, let's talk about this article a little bit, and it's not necessarily all going to be about this article, but that you recently wrote for the um, the Iowa Sportsman, catfishing the less traveled. Now, before we kind of get into it, right? I want to talk high level catfishing and especially maybe let's talk kind of maybe keep it relevant and let's talk springtime, right? What are the, we have fluctuating water levels. We have, you know, uh, some places still have a lot of ice on, on these rivers. What, what are the catfish doing right now this time of year?
0: My guess is they're still sitting pretty tight because the water's cold. Um, they're still in their wintering holes and I'm more of a river person. So I would say they're in the, in the wintering holes. We don't do any of the, of the winter fishing up here really for them. But in my experience, they don't really start going shallow until the water starts getting up around 40, get the ice off and everything like that. Then they'll start making their move from the wintering hole up to the shallows, but they really Really don't kick it into high gear till 48 to 50 degrees.
1: Okay. So, when you say a wintering hole, is this a place that they go uh, during cold water temps and just sit and basically try to conserve energy and eat anything that kind of the current brings them? Pretty much. Um, it, you know, flatheads and channel cats are a little bit different
0: from each other where the flatheads basically go to their wintering holes and they sit, they don't do anything where channels do feed occasionally. And, you know, you can get into metabolism all you want. They don't need to eat a lot and they just mostly sit there as well. Occasionally they'll go to the fringes and feed. Um, I've not spent much time on them in the winter, if any, um, I've gone right up to freeze up on them and they were predictably in their holes a day or two before the ice came on. And then in the spring we usually flood. So I never really get to go get that cold water
1: time in the spring. Right, absolutely. And it sounds like this spring is going to be another, uh, you know, this is just my reports from Iowa, uh, another very, you know, extremely high water level spring uh, with all the snow melt and the forecasted rain that we're supposed to have. So uh, it could get messy out there. But let's say right after the ice breaks up and the water level is manageable, how long do they stick around that, uh, that wintering hole, uh, before they, they hop out. And is, is it all based off water temperature?
0: Yeah. Everything they do is based on water temperature and length of day, mostly water temperature. And all of the research I've done basically makes them, it tells them they got to go, uh, you know, we find them moving shallow, usually on south facing shorelines where it, you know, warms up a little earlier, right? Really early, but usually when it hits about forty-eight to fifty, they start making a move. River catfish, channel cats. Now that's my expertise. Okay. Start making an upstream move, and the higher the water, it seems like the harder they move. Okay. Which is why you'll every now and again you run into catfish anglers that say, "All right, we're going to have a little high water fishing is going to be good this year."
1: Okay. So, and
0: I'm one of them this year. We haven't had a good flood in about six years. And I'm actually looking forward to a little flooding this year just to get some fresh fish in and get it spread out and get things cleaned up.
1: Okay. So let me ask you this. Let's say the ice comes off, right? The water level levels are manageable. Um, what does a – and I know you can't see under the water because a lot of the water is dirty in some of these rivers, right? But number one, how do you locate – a maybe a hole or a wintering hole uh, and number two you know is there specific uh features of a river that might lead you to one of these one of these holes or a good place well, to the wintering start? hole
0: the wintering holes are the biggest holes you can find in our case being you know, on a stretch of the river there's a 36 footer that's about a quarter mile long and there's a uh, 42 footer that's about a quarter mile long those are the two big ones to start in they're going to hold the most fish because it's coming around the corner it's the least amount of current takes virtually no energy to sit at the bottom so that's the two i would start with um from there it's just a matter of going through them and looking at them modern technology is makes things pretty easy to find fish um you know when a in a boat we'll just say it's ice is off in a boat you can turn on your side imaging if you have it and they're pretty easy to find
1: gotcha and it's just a matter of uh putting the putting the camera or the sonar or whatever that is out there and uh, the image that gets back identifies that hey there's something in there that i want to go after right okay usually by the time i even get to
0: the river they've already moved off the holes and are starting to work on the shallows and starting to look for food
1: okay all right. So
0: um, then I'm starting to play the sun, which is looking for the warmest water I can, Okay. which typically is a north shore or, you know, faces the most sun, darkest, muddiest area to get that extra degree or whatever. They tend to go shallow looking for that before they make their upstream move.
1: Gotcha. Okay. So after that, or now let's say it's springtime again, they've potentially moved out of the, um, out of their wintering hole. What are, what are the, uh, you know, you mentioned you wanted some high water, some flooding. What would they be doing in a scenario where there's, you know, flooding, high water? Are they still going shallow? What are, what are you looking for in a, a high water scenario? Well, in this high, in the high water
0: scenario, like the one we have this year, Uh, They're not even going to open the ramps. We're going to have to wait this one out. But in a normal year when it's a little high and everything's open, they work the edges. Normally, by the time I get there, they're already into the beginnings of the pre-spawn. They're into gorge, gorge, and gorge. At which point, they start to find the current tunnels in the rivers and start to make an upstream migration. Basically, they're moving through the areas with the least amount of resistance from the current, but they're eating everything that's washing in that they can find. Um, And when you get a little high water in there, that current tunnel becomes more prevalent at the bottom. We can't see it from the top, but it's down at the bottom. If you start studying hydrology, you can kind of figure out how that works. Also, any river that has a low hit dam or any kind of obstruction in it usually is out. So it's allowing more fish to spread out and cover more ground during that time. So it it makes them pretty predictable when they're moving on those current tunnels or right up on the bank within a secondary current because they're willing to eat just about anything you throw at them. You just got to find out where they're where they're actually moving at.
1: Gotcha. So what is a, a current tunnel? Talk to us a little bit more detail in that. And like if I was to look for a current tunnel, what where would, where do I look in a river? Uh,
0: you know, think about this one for a second. Usually I'm standing in front of a crowd and I use my hands and the tables and chairs. <laughs> <laughs> uh if you imagine looking, say, downstream of a river, it's where the bank goes down and meets the main channel okay so if you imagine imagine an empty swimming pool okay it would be where the side meets the bottom okay right on that on that 90 degree turn of course in a river there's no such thing as perfect like that but when the current's moving it's rolling over the top and it's going through the bottom. So actually we're seeing faster current on the surface than is actually happening at the bottom and where it meets that it's creating a point of dead water so they can move freely along that tunnel. So when things are fairly normal, temperatures are in that say 50 to 65 range, and they're in full force feed, they tend to move upstream. You find a good spot of the tunnel with a piece of structure, a log, a, anything nearby to bottle up that current and create a something impure to how that's, that's moving, that'll bottle up fish for a couple of minutes. And if you set it right on the deep edge of that, you can usually be very successful.
1: Nice. So this is like a, uh... Like you mentioned, if you can find some structure along one of these uh, tunnels, these current tunnels, then uh, that just even slows the water down more, and the deer or the deer, the uh, the fish tend to congregate there. Right. Okay. Cool. So one of my best ones that comes to mind, it's a it's
0: a riprap section below below our our dam, and. It comes down virtually 90 degrees and meets the bottom. And then it goes out another, probably boat width, and then it drops another couple feet, which creates the main channel. But it's shallower at one point about where we anchor up on it, and it's got some trees and junk stuck in it. So the tunnel is there, but those trees and stuff are actually slowing that current for a short time, and if, if they're making that move, you can sit in that spot all day and catch fish. Gotcha, gotcha. Now that's a very distinct window. If the water's too low, they don't come up. If the water's too high, they don't come up. Okay. It's and it's only in a spring a springtime deal, right? But that's the perfect example of the situation.
1: <laughs> okay. What about um, backwaters? or maybe a place where a creek runs into a a smaller river or a creek runs into uh the main the main river. Always good. Um if you're in a in
0: a big flood situation like we're about to, they can be outstanding because they tend to be shallower and they tend to warm faster and have current coming in as well. So actually fishing them during that time is a real good idea in a in a normal spring where there's a little bit of flow coming out of it right at the mouth right where the one river meets the other at the confluence is is good and i found anchoring just ahead of it not putting the bait necessarily in the confluence but just ahead of it because the water coming from the tributary into the main where the two are meeting will actually create a point of dead water. Right. And they'll lay just ahead of that. And then they'll jump in and grab whatever's coming by from there.
1: Okay. All right. So in this article, you talk a little bit about, you know, a lot of guys will go to the easy spots, right? Yep. Uh, when putting a little bit more work into, uh, the location might result in some better fish. Um, what, uh, explain to us a little bit more detail about what that means.
0: Well, let's think of it from the shore aspect first. Where can you get your vehicle back right down to the water so you don't have to carry anything? That's yeah. usually point A, near a bridge, a boat landing, something like that. And in in some cases, they're not bad spots. They're just way overfished. Yeah. And, you know, in the case of a boat, and I'm thinking of, one particular area that we have here it's about a half a mile to a mile stretch of river it's a really really nice piece of river produces lots of big fish and it's not a secret and you can go there when words out that the bite is pretty good you can go there and it's common to see seven to ten boats through there in a day that one little stretch just rotating in and out of each other yet you never see those same people anywhere else in the river. It's because it's a lot of, it's because they had success once and it's easy to get to whatever happens, happens from there. Right. That's the, the big, the big thing of it now using our town as a example, we were flooded in 97 and about six miles of neighborhoods along the river was taken out and they made it into public park. And it's all got bike path in it and it's, you it all borders the river and with just a little bit of effort and a bicycle ride or a walk, the shore access is just amazing, but it takes a little bit of effort and you just don't see that effort in most cases. Right. It, it, I mean, I've always said, if you got a tackle backpack, which I know the good people at Plano make a lot of different ones, can carry a rod and ride a bicycle if you rode your bike a half a mile and were willing to walk a couple hundred yards maybe chop yourself a path through some tall grass and weeds you would have private shore access to some of the greatest
1: fishing waters in the state wow and that's awesome that's awesome so and that's getting off the beaten path yeah absolutely absolutely so as far as you know, we've talked about the the uh, current tunnels. We've talked a little bit about where the current tunnels meet some structures. Um, is Are there any other places that may be overlooked uh, as far as maybe uh, whether it's a bend in a river or a, a straight path of the river or if there's backwater, you know, or something else that people should keep an eye out for that could say, hey, hey, this might produce some good catfishing.
0: Well, the biggest one, the, the most simple one, and we'll, we're just, let's just go back and say everything's normal. just for simplicity here the biggest one is small holes and i've been preaching this one for years that there's so many holes that get over overlooked and it's part of the getting off the beaten path part and fishing the less most folks in bends in whatever they're taught go to the biggest baddest hole you can find but there's so many more smaller holes that are available that are being overlooked. Um, you know, I still, I talk to lots of people in the Midwest all year long, and a lot of them don't even consider anything that's more than or less than about five feet of a drop off into a hole a hole. Well, a hole can actually be as little as six inches deep. As long as a fish can tuck in and get a little current protection or find a feeding spot, that's considered a hole. And part of the reason I wrote that article was it off the beaten path. I mean, like I said, we got in that situation where we've got that one stretch of river that's really good. It's got a nice big presented hole, two of them actually, uh, nice current seams, nice tunnels, very easy to find, and it always produces good fish. It just gets overfished. Well, I'll avoid that whole section because I've, I've learned how to fish those smaller holes that others aren't finding stuff that's two and three feet deep. The thing to consider is you can't overfish those holes because they just aren't big enough to support lots of fish.
1: Right. Right. So when I think of catfishing, right, I've, I've found a couple holes and they, they are, this is in the past when I used to do a lot more fishing. Um, I would find a a smaller hole. Uh, I would throw, you know, throw my line in and, and catch a catfish or two out of that, Similar to bass fishing when they're schooled up, do catfish uh like restack into a spot if it's good or is there a time frame that you usually give something before either uh you know, fish find it or come back to it? Depends on the time of the year in the spring, especially if you have a little current, not
0: necessarily flooding, but a little extra current, a little runoff. Uh it'll recycle every twenty four hours usually. Even, you know, speaking, going back to the small Mm -hmm. holes, I have no problem fishing the smaller holes every day during that time up until about spawn. Once we get into post-spawn and later down the summer, and I've been, you know, inexperienced, taught me this one the hard way. If you have a good spot and you fish it day after day, you will fish it out to the point where I generally mid-summer give my spots three to five days rest between fishing them just to let everything the fish I may have caught in there recuperate and new fish find the spot and I find it makes for much more consistent fishing rather than waiting for you know hitting them every day
1: right right so just kind of out of my own curiosity when is the catfish spawn?
0: 70 degrees
1: is when they start setting on the nest in the
0: channel cat world. It's a little bit warmer and later for the flatheads. We don't have flatheads up here, but, uh, so you can't really set your clock by the calendar. you got to set it by where you live and, and what the water temperatures are doing. Gotcha. I suspect this year, our spawn here is going to be mid to late June, okay. just because of the late spring. Uh, last year they started setting the nest Memorial weekend here because we got really hot really fast. Gotcha.
1: Okay. All right. Well, if we're going to talk about fish, uh, we got to talk about tackle. Um, so, when when you're out there, walk me through your setup, I- including you know your rod, your reel, your line, uh, and any other you know, important feet you know important pieces of gear that you need, and then kind of what bait you're using. Well. Uh... I'm pretty basic as far as
0: the gear I use. I haven't found any need to get into a lot of the the fancy stuff that you see on the market yet because the bottom line is catfish are hunters and they're looking for meat. They're not looking for flash. And I've become being in the right spot with a good piece of bait is usually more important than what you're showing them or what the bait actually is, although there is some variation to that. But basically I use a it is a five to eight aught circle hook with a ten to twelve inch tied monofilament snell, uh a simple number one or number three barrel swivel. And then I always use thirty pound mono to my main line up to uh a reel that can handle 100 150 yards of, of thirty pound mono and then and then a medium to a medium heavy rod and you know rods tend to everyone tends to be different, yeah yeah, but it's pretty pretty simple how I set it up. I use uh you know the old Abu garcia bait casting reel that's been on the market for as long as I've been alive and then some and um the the Berkeley big game line that you can buy in any outdoor store. So that part's nothing too fancy. And then from there I use a no roll sinker that I can adjust, you know, how heavy I need it anywhere from two to five ounces, depending. And I mean there's lots of other different kinds of sinkers you can use, whatever
1: you prefer. I prefer no roll. Gotcha. Okay. So uh then as far as the, the bait is concerned. Uh, we talking stink bait, we talking, uh, like bluegill, what are we talking?
0: Well, up here in my neck of the woods, bluegill is illegal. Okay. Now, if it was legal, I would use the heck out of it. So I use a lot, White sucker is my go-to. They're generally available up here and you can buy them. Gotcha. And so that's my go-to. And then we can catch gold eye and moon eye and use that. That's more of a mid-summer some years it works some years it doesn't and then on the wet years if there's a good crop of frogs we switch over to frogs in late July but I never leave home without suckers ever
1: okay so i just kind of curious why are what's the reasoning for bluegill like you can't catch a bluegill and use it as catfish bait north
0: dakota and minnesota have bluegill deemed as a game fish and according to bait laws you cannot use a game fish for bait
1: ah. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. All right, so is there, as maybe the spring kind of progresses, right, and we're getting closer and closer to the spawn, or let's even maybe talk about pre-spawn, is the strategy different at all? Well, from basically from the time
0: the water hits 50 to the time they get ready to set on the nest, it's pre-spawn. And they pretty much fish exactly the same way. in our case hopefully we're in by mid-may and then it's going to run till about mid-june you know hopefully nothing gets goofed up in there but when they're pre-spawning i mean basically from the time they leave cold water pattern to the time they head to the nest it's the same it's pre-spawn gotcha okay and then when the water hits that 69 70 ish time Then you'll notice that instead of an upstream move, they'll start moving away downstream. So if you're fishing in the first two or three miles of the dam, you'll start noticing less and less fish, which is an indicator that they're starting to spread out and move and look for their nests. Gotcha. And that doesn't necessarily mean they're all going to look to the nest right away. It just means that you have to fish a little bit harder and be a little more willing to move and try different things because... Not all fish spawn at the same time.
1: Right, right. Okay. So, you know, one thing we didn't really talk about was low water, right, or smaller rivers or smaller, maybe like a big creek or something like that where there's catfish in there, maybe not huge ones or maybe not the bigger numbers, um, or maybe even we talk a little bit about low water, um, is there a specific way to uh, fish those bodies of water?
0: Not really, because a river is a river. Right. Some are little and some are big. (laughs)
1: Gotcha.
0: Gotcha. Um, The littler rivers, I believe, are a little bit easier to read and a little bit easier to get around on. Uh, I like flow. Um, That's the bottom line. We've had low water the past two years, extremely low water, to the point where the past two years in a row, by late summer I've had to abandon my main go to area just out of not wanting to wreck my gear, meaning my boat. Gotcha. Gotcha. (laughs) And if you have times of low, lower flow, the fish tend to spread out and they're a lot less predictable. So if you can find that area that actually has a little extra flow, you can usually find the fish to break that down a little bit. We have a a little low head dam right here in the middle of town. And we obviously have a downstream side and an upstream side. And when it was really low last year, it was basically down to the top of the dam creating almost a lake effect on the, on the top side. You could vertically fish a half an ounce in the river easy, right? That's how slow the current was. And you could drive along and look at your electronics and you would see fish, but there was nothing holding them. They wouldn't necessarily sit in the hole. They wouldn't necessarily sit on structure because there was just no current. It almost became like a lake situation where you should be trolling or drifting for them. But in a snaggy, narrow river, that's next to impossible without just being wrecking hooks and losing sinkers all day and not catching fish necessarily. Where if you go down below the dam, you had a lot of obstacles to deal with but you could find those sections where the river would narrow and push the current up and create a little faster flow you could almost always find fish near those areas yeah and in the in the extreme low situation that's what it became was just simply going to areas looking for places that would bottle it up and add that current Gotcha because they were looking for that current because they know instinctively that's where the easier food is going to be caught.
1: All right. So in the Mississippi River, uh, in the northeast Iowa, and I'm sure they probably have them somewhere out where you're at as well, uh, we run into these wing dams. Uh, and on these wing dams, you know, these under these long underwater piles of rock, um, what about... I mean, do do catfish generally tend to you know come on the backside or the down the downstream side or downstream side of of those because it slows down the water too? Is that is that something that maybe would hold some some catfish? Yep, I do not have wing dams here. Oh, okay. However,
0: in observing them and taking pictures of them and looking at videos of them the water moves on them exactly the same as it would on a big tree lay down. Right. Where it pushes around and creates the dead spot, creates the sandbar even in front of them to a point where it pushes because it's still lower or still less current at the bottom than the top that when the current hits the edge of the edge of it and pushes out, it'll create that dead spot in front as well. Okay. So, I've always viewed it, and, and talking to various anglers on the Missouri in particular that fish them, it seems to have the exact same effect as a big cottonwood or something would lay in down here. Right. Right. Uh, just a little bit more, you know, a little more flow and a little more violence as far as how the water's pulling around the back. So, there's some safety concerns that need to be dealt with as well.
1: But, right. As far as how the water moves,
0: it's virtually identical.
1: Okay. All right. So, is there any difference? Let's say you're looking for uh, something to fry in a pan, or maybe you're looking for something just to, just a huge catfish to take pictures of and, and throw back. Is there any difference in, you know, catching a using different tackle, I mean, obviously, uh, but using different bait or different strategy for hunting or for uh, uh, catching like a smaller catfish that you want to eat versus a large, gigantic 50, 60, 70 pounder? Well, I wish I had 50, 60 or 70 pounders, but I live in channel cat country, so
0: we're shooting for 18 to 25 pounders, but there is a difference. There is a difference, and I'm established on a trophy river as a trophy guide so i fish almost exclusively for big fish gotcha and i fish the current seams harder i fish the mid-river stuff harder the smaller holes within the mid-river if the you know conditions say so and i target big fish and i actually tell people i'm probably going to catch less fish because of that but by the time people get to me as a guide, they're looking for the photo. Right. So that's the goal. Mostly not saying we don't catch three to six pounders that people can take home and eat because we do. But for the most part, we're targeting the big fish and sometimes that costs numbers. Now, if someone comes to me, which is pretty rare and says, I want to fill my cooler with eaters, then what I'll usually do is I'll rake two lines up with a small treble hook and I'll pull out the dip baits and I'll try to get out of the current behind a wood pile, someplace that's got a lot less current than a normal mid river looking for big fish area. And we'll put that stink bait and dip bait out there in that dead water and we'll usually catch one to three pounders doing that.
1: And that's that's the perfect pound uh, size for the pan, right?
0: Right, and we have a slot limit here, so we ha- if you're only legally up here, you're only allowed one over 24 inches. I have a boat rule of none over 24 inches, so if we're filling a cooler, we actually have to go target the smaller fish. Gotcha. And that's usually how we do it.
1: Gotcha. Okay.
0: I think it's been two years since I've had that request.
1: Gotcha. All right, here's a here's one of the last questions for you, though. Um, what's the biggest catfish you've ever caught? Ever in my life is uh,
0: 43 pounds. And that was a channel catfish? And that was in Alabama. That was a flathead in Alabama. Flathead in Alabama. All right. All biggest right. one that I've caught here was right around 30. We did not get a scale on it. It was the end of the year, and... I was done guiding batteries were dead on the scale and it was just me and a couple buddies out messing around when I caught it.
1: Yeah. But
0: it was 38 and a half inches with a 25 inch goose. And when you chart that it comes in and it says 29 to 31 pounds on the chart, but we'll never know.
1: That's right.
0: Uh, Biggest in my boat guiding is 28. Right. And um, we're good for, Depending on the year, we're good for anywhere from 3 to 5 in that 25-pound range.
1: Yeah. I was, uh, my only real catfish, I mean, I've caught the small ones, right? But uh, I was using a crankbait for bass fishing one in a farm pond of all places. And uh, my biggest catfish I've ever caught, I, I think, was like a 14-pound channel cat.
0: Well, that just goes to prove that they're hunters. right. That they will chase a crank bait down,
1: right? Absolutely. And
0: they're opportunistic feeders, but they're also hunters. And I, people don't believe me. In the early spring, when the water's about fifty to fifty-two, before most people are out around here, if you get a nice warm day with a calm evening, you can actually watch the big cats surface feeding at dusk, chasing fish up the riprap and surface feeding. And it's really something to see big cats
1: surfacing eating gold eyes and whatever else they're chasing up. Yeah. So they are aggressive predators. That's awesome, man. Yeah. And I, I take it catfishing would be something, you know, obviously bluegill or sunfish, something where you're going to get a lot of reputation, uh, you know, repetition in, in your bite cycle. But I think something like catfish would be an, a, another great step to introduce kids, right?
0: Oh, absolutely. Uh, The biggest problem with some of the smaller kids is the fish are just too big for them to handle. And over 12 years of guiding and having a kid of my own coming up through, we've actually figured out how to make it work for the most part for them. And what I do is I shove the rod down into the rod holder. I use stainless steel Driftmaster rod holders, so they're not going to break. And when the fish is on, I'll just push the rod all the way down to the reel in in there. And then I've got power handles on everything. So I'll just tell them to walk up to the rod holder and start to reel.
1: Nice. nice. And the
0: rods can take the shock pretty good. If, if If the fish is a little bigger and needs a little help, I'll usually reach down and just give the line a little tug just so they can, they can get a bite on it with the reel and help out a little bit that way. And then when we get to the, part of the netting where it takes a little bit of arm strength we'll pull it out of the holder and then dad grandpa mom or whoever's around we'll grab the rod with them and, and just help that last little bit so we can get it into the net and that's helped a lot I and mean, we've had kids that are five and six years old catching 15 to 18 20 even a couple 20 pound fish wow mostly on their own and you know they don't forget that. No, <laughs> they don't. <laughs>
1: I'm just imagining, imagining my six year old trying to reel in a twenty pound catfish right now. That'd be that'd be something well, to see.
0: My boy got his first twenty when he was five. Wow! And that's how we did it. We just stuck it in the rod holder and let him crank until the very end. And we got to the point. Well, if there was days him and I would be out by ourselves. So there was really nobody to help. So what I did is I just put a front rod holder in and I'd move the rod to the front. And then I would just coach him to take his time on the reel. And eventually the fish would surface for me to net. Awesome. And and we would do everything by ourselves. But, you know, we're probably the oddities that I could take a six-year-old to catch 15 to 20 pound channel cats and just be the two of us.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I tell you what, Brad, man, I really appreciate you uh, dropping some knowledge on us uh, today, talking about uh, these big old catfish at the bottom of these uh, rivers, and uh, I appreciate your time.
0: There's so much more to it than we discussed, too.
1: Yeah, It's it's one of the understudied fish
0: out there, and there's so much more to it. There's so much more intricacies to it that's been discovered in bass and walleyes and such that we're just starting to scratch the surface on how these things tick and what they do. And I'm trying to do my part with various research projects and figure them out. So there'll be a lot more to come over the years, I'm sure.
1: Yeah. Well, once you start finding that information out, let us know and you can hop back on, uh, on the podcast and chat with us.
0: Well, to get everybody started, I do have two books on the market. Well, one is, Cracking the channel catfish code and one is advanced catfishing made easy. You can get both of them on Amazon.
1: Gotcha. And what is your uh, guide service website?
0: Guide service website. Any information you need on me is simply redrivercatfish.com.
1: And there you go. And there you go. Well, I appreciate your time, Brad. All right. Thanks for having me. All right, Brad. Really appreciate your time. Thank you very much for hopping on the podcast, and thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. For more information about the Iowa Sportsman, whether you want uh, to subscribe to their magazine or whether you want to check out their uh, their blog you can go to iowasportsman.com and uh, check out all the blogs they have. That's where you can also find this podcast. You can also find this podcast on iTunes or wherever you download uh, podcasts and just hit subscribe and then it will come automatically to your phone or mobile device. And I think that's it. Be sure to check out the Iowa Sportsman Facebook page and soon to be Instagram page. Uh, Lots of awesome content coming through there. And uh, I guess that's it. We'll talk to you next week.